My next guest is Tony Grundy on Tea Time with me, Ali Monjack. Tony has been in radio for 45 years, was brought up by his very well-known dad, TV personality Bill Grundy, and cut his own career in broadcast, working with names such as David Hamilton. He could have been a professional footballer, but it seems that broadcast is in his blood. Let's find out more. Welcome, Tony, to Tea Time with me, Ali Monjack. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, not so bad at all. Nice to join you. Nice you asked me. Thank you. You're, you're always welcome. You know that anyway. So, um, I mean, it, it's uh, been a strange time for everybody recently, hasn't it, with lockdown and everything else that's been going on? Yeah, I, I think it, it affects, obviously, lots of people in different ways. Uh, I'm retired these days, but it still affects you, you know, and, and you have to kind of adapt. And I've tried to do that in my life, in my simple way, you know, and get some structure to my life. But I, I don't know if anybody I know who said, who, who had said, nobody has, uh, I've not been affected by it. I would just say, well, you're a liar <laughs> because it, it has to have affected you in some way or other. In some cases, majorly ways. Uh, in, my, in my case, probably less so. But you still need to react to it rather than saying, well, that's nothing to do with me. It's to do with everybody. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So, I mean, would you have thought, though, 45 years ago, when you started out in broadcast yourself, that we'd be using channels like this? <laughs> to do uh, absolutely not. I mean, uh, the technology is one of those things that the longer you're in the business, and obviously I'm retired now, but one of the last things I did was go back into a radio station, Radio 107, as it happens, because I was asked to by Sir John Medeski to help sort it out. One of the things you realise then, because there'd been a six-year gap, is just how technology had moved ahead. Now, my view of that was, I don't need to know all the technology. I don't need to understand it. But isn't this good? Because we can move so much faster. Things are exciting. And as a small local radio station, actually this made us even quicker on our feet, quicker than the big guys to react to things. And that to me was exciting. But at the same time, I was thinking, you know what? This is probably a good time for me to duck out of radio because this is just going to go on moving at such a pace. And when you said 45 years a few seconds ago, I was thinking, I'm ancient. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. You're really, really not. So, I mean, you've got a wealth of knowledge, and I'm, I'm, I'll always be extremely thankful, Tony, for, for <laughs> sorting my head out where, as far as broadcast was concerned. So, um, but I mean, it, it, you basically come from a broadcast family, don't you? I do. I, I don't know whether that's. I mean, obviously, there are broadcast families, the Dimblebys and whatever. And, and you don't know you're part of that. But when I was nine, ten years old, uh, I remember, because I'm one of six children, at the time it was four, and my dad was a geological engineer. Very good job. We're, uh, and with a company called John Thompson, he went around the world and blah, blah, blah. Um, but he actually applied, because he used to do part-time theatre work on, on, you know, local thespian, as it were, uh, and we used to go and watch him, and he was very good. Uh, but he applied for a job as a newsreader at the then brand new 
Granada television, which covered both Lancashire and Yorkshire to begin with. There wasn't Yorkshire television. And dad applied for, as a newsreader and he got the job. And to a certain extent, the rest is history. But that was at a time when lots of people said commercial television won't work. And he gave up a really good job to go into that with four children. And obviously, you don't know that at the time. Dad's changing his job. And because he was... He wasn't trained to be in broadcast, was he? No, but I think what is useful is if you've been on the theatre, you're used to projection and timing and scripts and, and that sort of stuff. So he kind of had that. Whether he thought about that in those terms, he was a very bright guy, so he was a good writer. So as a journalist, he very quickly adapted to what was required. And in the end, he was running that programme on a on an evening basis. So Monday to Friday, he was front of house. And I, by then, was at secondary modern school. And uh, to be honest, it's a thing that, as a teenager, you're trying to make your own way. Uh, and people would say, oh, you're Bill Grundy's son, in quite a critical way. You know, and sometimes I would end up in fights at school because people would insult my dad. And, and, and I know that sounds a bit strange, but you stick up for your dad, don't you? And, and I thought, well, what rights have you... And I used to say to people, so your dad works on the railways. What if I insulted him? How would you feel then? So it's a strange phenomenon, but it's equally, it has its rewards because the people that became dad's friends, uh, you know, for instance, Mike Parkinson was the sports reader for Granada Television News. And he became, he thought dad was phenomenal and sort of, listen to his every word and very often Mike Parkinson would end up coming around to our house with his wife and his kids and you know you just get to know people like that and you're not thinking well you don't know what Michael Parkinson can do with his life but when you look at it afterwards he became very famous but he was still a mate of dad's and that was just what you brought up with and it took you into areas where you wouldn't normally go but what it did for me is it kind of normalized broadcast because dad used to say, you know, because there was all this thing about personalities, celebrities, even then. And he said, that's complete nonsense. I, I've got a job like everybody else has. I turn up at a certain time and I do my job and that's it. And he absolutely downplayed all of that. And he wouldn't have anybody saying, oh, he's famous or otherwise. He, but he was very good at his job. And I learned a lot about broadcast almost without realising it. Yeah, no, I understand that. But I mean, as a child, that must have been quite difficult, though, because, you know, I suppose when you're on television or, you know, in the media, any sort of description, it does yeah. put, put you up front, doesn't it, to be criticised? Yeah, it, it does, and in all sorts of strange ways. And uh, I was uh, a pretty good footballer. You know, at 15, I was having trials with Manchester City and so on. And, I'd have loved to have been a professional footballer, but I did quite well at it. But every time it was ever reported, and at 17, I was in Stockport County's reserve team, you know, which doesn't sound much these days, but they were a pretty good team then. And, and um, that was unusual. But every time it was reported, it was Tony Grundy, son of TV personality, Bill Grundy. So it was never just me. And I know that sounds a bit weird, but if, unless you've been there, and, and you desperately want to try and make your own way, and, and you don't want that. So I, uh, uh, 
that didn't appeal to me at all, but I could understand why it was happening. Uh, and that also took me into other areas. My football meant I played in charity games with that. And so I was, I consider myself not only to have learned broadcast early on, but also um, to have been taken into areas that most other people wouldn't. I mean, Dad on that People and Places program, by the way, the Beatles made one of their first live appearances on TV. And they liked Dad. Uh, uh, Paul and, and, and George liked him and got on well with him for whatever reasons, because he was very direct and was never impressed by, but he, he thought they were quite talented musicians. And Dad was quite good at music as well. And um, they actually included Dad's name in one of the lyrics for their song. Somebody told me this one day, I didn't know. I was doing some work up at Warwick University and this guy said, do you realize your dad, uh, they were in the lyrics of the Beatles song? I said, what? And he told me and I, I looked it up and he was quite right. And it, somewhere in there, and I can't even remember which song it was, it said, old Bill Grundy. And so they liked him. And, and so things like that. Do you know, just... I think I've heard that song. I have, I'm pretty sure I have. Well, Old Bill Grundy, yeah, and weird, and I, I honestly thought, because this was years and years later when I was lecturing at Warwick University, and this guy told me, because he said, are you, are you related to him? I said, well, yeah, he's my dad. And, and uh, he went through all of this, and I looked it up, and he's quite right. So there were things that happened then, you know, like I played in charity football matches, sometimes with five, 10,000 people there, and I was only, sort of 18, 19, something like that. And I ended up in one game where at half time, guess what, two people turned up, George Best and Mike Summerby, who were top international footballers at that time, not yeah. finished. They were at the top of their game and this could never happen now. But they loved playing football and they just said, can we, can we play in the second half? And what turned out was they were playing for the opposition Again, and I was marking George Best and Mike Summerby. And, and the, George Best actually said to Dad, because he knew him, Bill, have you got any boots, size seven and a half? And Dad said, yeah, because he was just coming off. And, and he, he's, he gave George Best his these big Timpson football boots. And George Best put them on and played in the second half against me. Now, my hero was George Best. I wasn't too keen on Mike Summerby because he played for City, who were they? other side of Manchester yeah. and uh, I was kind of but every time George Best got the ball the crowd was screaming because everybody heard they turned up to play and uh, I, I, I wouldn't mind kicking and didn't mind kicking Mike Summerby but like George Best was a god to me uh, but I remember coming home from that game and my mum said uh, how did you go on Anthony Anthony uh, how did you go on and I said you will not believe what happened and so things like that, how can you possibly put a value on that in terms of experience? So some wonderful things happened, but it also taught me about broadcast, some of the prima donnas, some of the you know, people that went by the wayside and those that made success out of it. Dad was one of them for many, many years, top of his game. And not because he was my dad, but I really respected how good he was. I watched him in action. You know, and it taught me a hell of a lot. I knew, incidentally, Ali, I knew then, particularly sports broadcasting, if I ever did that, I knew I could do it without ever having done it. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it sounds like, though, 
the football thing. I mean, I know absolutely know that you love Manchester United. I do. And I, I just feel that now that, you know, you've described all this, I mean, I, I know the stories anyway, but I mean, has, has this whole situation not stood in the, the way of your career at Manchester United? You could have been a footballer. <laughs> yeah, I could, uh, it's a true story that uh, I went through, the way they used to do it, they maybe still do, they started off with a list of 700 people they wanted to put through the trials in the summer. And gradually they whittled it down to those people they actually wanted to sign. And I went through all these trial games. I didn't think too much about it. I, I thought, there's another game of football. I enjoy football. And it seemed to go quite well. And they kept inviting me back to the next one. And the final trial, Dad said, well, I'm coming along to that. And they hadn't come to any of the others. And I thought, hmm, OK. Um, for once, he was taking interest in what I was doing. And, and um, he came along. And at the end of it, they sort of crowded, a few people were crowding around that, but also the people from City came up to us and they said, we would like to sign your son. Now, I was 15 and Dad said, well, he's not signing. <laughs> and now, if you say that to people now, I said it to one of my nephews and he said, why didn't you sign? <laughs> now, signing for a football club then was very different. You were probably on about £30 a week. Uh, signing for Manchester City now, you then are set up for life, you know, because you're on millions of pounds a year. So it was a very different concept then. And Dad said, you know, and I stood by him while he said it, and, and I thought, he said he's going to college and he's going to get his exams. Uh, and, and that was that. And I didn't think too much about it then. And I actually, the compensatory thing was I, I trained as a teacher. And then got into media through newspapers. But all through that time, the compensation for me in football terms was I played semi-professional, which was decent level up in the Northwest. So yeah. I, I, I enjoyed my football and yeah, somebody would give you seven quid or 10 quid or whatever it was a week. Uh, so it wasn't for the money, but I was playing at the next level down to league football but developing a career and to that extent you could say well if i hadn't made it at 17 or whatever it was what would i have done because i wouldn't have gone into teacher training so you can you can look at it lots of different ways but that's how it happened so i never looked back on it and thought what if i actually have always taken a positive view and said yeah but now i'm in as it turned out after newspapers thompson group and then free papers um when a lot of people said free papers wouldn't work and i think I told, you, I think I told you the other day that in the sales team of the free paper we worked at was a guy called eddie Shaw, which now most people know that name and he went from that paper being closed uh, and all of us being made redundant not because we'd failed but actually ironically because we'd succeeded in closing down another free paper and the Manchester Evening mm. News had put the money into it. They pulled the money out and said, thanks very much. And we were all out of a job, Eddie Shaw included. And I've spoken to Eddie since about this. But it's not whether something happens to you, it's what you do about it. And I had, fortunately, somebody had recommended me to Piccadilly Radio in Manchester. And I had been along for an initial interview there. And, you know, to be honest, for about an hour or so, I felt quite sorry for myself. 
and I think you know I, I and I was yeah. I wasn't I wasn't married to Sue my wife of now 45 years I wasn't married to Sue then but I was thinking how am I going to tell her I haven't got a job anymore they gave me a week's pay in cash uh, so I, I felt sorry for myself for an hour and then I thought so what are you going to do about it nobody else is going to help you pick yourself up dust yourself down go again and I picked up the phone to the sales director at Piccadilly Radio, who I'd been in to see. And I said, Jane, you won't remember me. And she said, yes, I do. You've been in for an interview. I said, okay. Well, Richard saw me then, and he offered me the chance of a job when the station launches, which is two months down the line from here. And I said, but my circumstances have changed. Could I come in and speak to Richard again? And she obviously went on the silence again and spoke to him. And she said, can you come in on Monday? And I said, yes, which was, I got my one week's pay in cash. So that was great. I go in on a Monday. And, you know, it's just timings, everything. I think it was about six weeks away from the launch of Piccadilly Radio, 1974, this. Wow. And 2nd of April, 74, we went on air. But this was the February. And um, it seemed to go well. And sometimes people get a bit nervous before they launch a radio station. Well, everybody does, actually. But oh. you get nervous on revenue. And I think the sales director was just wobbling about targets and so on. And he said, after a while, he said, I want you to meet the MD, a guy called Philip Birch. And I thought, oh, this is moving on at a pace. So I said, fine. And I, I really like Philip Birch. I thought, you've got a, a bit of style about you. I like you. And... Um, we sat down and talked, and at the end of it, he said, you start Monday, which was like one week on. And I thought, yippee. And I'll tell you what, Ali, I, the first day when I looked at this whole setup, and this was 74, and it, the fifth ever commercial radio station to come on my air. Yeah. When lots of people were saying, don't ever go into commercial radio, including my dad, because it's too risky. Uh, I came back and I said to Sue, I actually can make a career of this. I think it's going to be absolutely phenomenal. And I think I'm in the right place at the right time. And the best job has to be managing director. Uh, and that became, I mean, it sounds silly, but the day I started was the day I obviously began my career in broadcast, but also the day when I knew just absolutely at my heart this was where I wanted to be. It felt you know, right. Absolutely. And, you know, so all of what had happened there before suddenly became, in all sorts of ways, very valuable. Now, I wasn't a broadcaster. I was in sales. But I knew if I was going to become an MD, which seemed to me the best job, um, I'd have to learn all the jobs. So at some stage, and maybe it would be, and it was actually, but in sports broadcasting, I would learn the ropes. Because if you're ever going to talk to uh, journalists and broadcasters like yourself, it's useful if they know you've actually been there as opposed to, well, you were just good at selling, so you got an MD's job. And, and that became my mantra that I would obviously have to advance in radio, maybe move, and I did geographically, but I would, I would learn all the skills. The next thing would be I had to become a sales director, sales manager. And then the next step after that, maybe MD. And it took me a bit longer than I wanted to. I set myself a target of being an MD by the time I was 31. And I was actually 33. I was a bit annoyed about that. 
oh, but anyway. Goodness, Tony, <laughs> you're driven. You really are. Well, I, You've had I, a, I, an amazing career. You really have on your own back. Wow. But, but, but the thing is, Ali, I've always been competitive with myself, with other people. I always ended up being like captain of football teams. And as you probably gathered from me gabbing on here, it is I like talking to people. I am interested in people. But I, I like to try and, if you're in a team and you're captain of it, try and motivate people to want to be better. And I'll tell you what, very definitely to want to win. You know that at the start of a football match, people throw a coin up? Yeah. And you, as a captain, you call whether heads or tails. I was so brassed off if I got that wrong at the start. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if I ever got that wrong, you know. Uh, and that's how competitive I was. So and people used to watch me play football who would know me from a business point of view and said, you're, you're like a wild animal. You're so competitive. And I thought, well, I am. And some people are and some people aren't. So I've never apologized for that. Never apologized for wanting to win. And maybe in those early days, you know, I would sulk over a weekend where my team lost and Manchester United lost. And Sue would have to sort of appease me. Um, <laughs> And tell me to straighten my back and get on with it. Oh, she's uh, done, a, done a great job. She's a great lady as uh, well. I mean, you've uh, been together 45 years, haven't you? Well, you've just celebrated 45 years and you need somebody who's strong and will say, just pull yourself together and don't be such a girl, you know. Uh, and, and, and I say, yeah, you're right, actually. But I, it was because I like winning. And, and part of the thing in radio was set yourself targets. Yeah, they may seem a long way off but set yourself targets and and be ambitious and tell people what your ambitions are and talk to people that can help you and the same all those mantras when it I, was the other way around i've always wanted to help people new people coming into radio and so on and i've never said to somebody you're too young you know or whatever just give them opportunities tell me what you think you can do and i've interviewed thousands of people over the years and some of the best people I'm still in contact with, you know, they're, they're friends on Facebook or whatever. And that's lovely to think that. Yeah, no, it is lovely to think that. But I mean, you are like the, the, the father of radio broadcast, aren't you? I mean, I, <laughs> I, I can remember when we first met, which is 10 years ago now, goodness. And I was yeah. working in Newbury Sound. Um, in the studio and David Blake, the MD at the time, he said, um, Tony Grundy's coming in today. I thought, oh, what's that? <laughs> who the hell is he? <laughs> who the hell is he? <laughs> yeah, I was like <laughs> hanging on to my seat. I thought, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, Hammy, who used to work there, went, oh yeah, he's, he's a living legend. He really is. <laughs> he really knows his stuff in radio. Oh yes, said David. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know he's basically? So you were you were petrified. <laughs> and they never ever said who your father was. No. Never ever said who your father was. So you, you totally have this your own reputation in radio. And then of course you know I was thinking, God, who is this character? <laughs> who is this person? Anyway, you, you walked in and, and I'll always remember the first thing you said to me was like, oh my goodness, your head looks like it's hurting. <laughs> You're like, can I be of any help? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd come yeah. out 
press, hadn't I, into radio, and I was just like, yeah. oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I could see it in your eyes, you were like a rabbit in headlights, you know, and, and obviously over time, because I'd trained a lot of salespeople, it wasn't a criticism, it was just an observation, and I was basically saying, can I help in any way? And sometimes debunking that and just saying, look, just tell me what you'd like to achieve and getting to know the person to then kind of design what I knew was a way to be successful in radio and, and actually debunking some of the fear about a relatively new medium. And, mm -hmm. and that was because I knew, I mean, going back to that Manchester thing, I said it to you before, Ali, but it was during the three day week and during the power strikes, you know, and, and people say, younger people like yourself will say, what? But actually it was during the minor strikes, the Thatcher thing and all of that going on. And some of the people I was talking to about radio for the very first time, didn't know who the hell you were, but were seeing you, you were talking to by candlelight because it was their turn to be out with the power. And if you can succeed in that environment, you know, with something that nobody knew anything about, once it, by the time I saw you in Newbury Radio being going quite a while, it had an established track record, still new for a lot of people. So it's taking the fear out of that and actually turning it the other way around and saying, this is a really exciting medium. Look at what it can do. And, and so I enjoyed meeting people like yourself because, you know, I'd seen lots of people with that kind of fear in their eyes. They've been given lots of information, but they're thinking, what the hell do I do with all of this, you know? And so, yeah, it was, that, as you're quite right, that was our first meeting. But as we are now 10 years later, still talking, <laughs> which, is, which is good, you know, and, and, and hopefully I was helpful then. But equally, you know, we've linked up on lots of different things since, which is great. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're you know, I don't, you know, I'm fond of you anyway. So, I mean, you're, you're a great mentor. You really, really are. I mean, you have taught me most things about radio, you know, about broadcast. I mean, obviously, you know, carried on. TV, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, you've always been incredibly supportive uh, and that's great, you know, that, that I feel that wherever I go in broadcast, you've always got my back. <laughs> yeah, well, so, that, 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 that's brilliant. That, something to pick up on something you said before, Ali, um, about they never mentioned dad and television. One of the things was, after I came out of Manchester, and this is perfectly true, I went to Radio Victory in Portsmouth, 250 miles away, whatever. Uh, and I was absolutely determined I was going to make my own way in radio without anybody ever saying, oh, of course, you're Bill Grundy's son. So I never told anybody. It sounds crazy, but almost from the time I went to college and did my O-levels and A-levels and at PE college, I never told anybody because it wasn't important. I was making my own way. And, and in fact, that leads to one of the biggest stories about dad, you know, that a lot of people, if they ever do a Wikipedia on dad, they say, oh, was he the guy with the sex pistols? And the answer was, yes, he was. And mm -hmm. it was the kind of beginning, it was almost the end of his TV broadcast career, sadly. Uh, and I was at Radio Victory when that happened. Yeah, and uh, that, that's so sad, isn't it? It, it yes. really was sad. So, I mean, yeah, just, just to sort of recap quickly, because not, not everybody will no, um, they won't. know the story, but, I mean, this is, you know, 
years ago. I mean, in broadcast now, you can kind of get away. I don't know, Ofcom rules have kind of changed a little bit, haven't they? But it wasn't yes, actually your dad that swore on air, was it? Oh, no. Uh, um, but by then, he was doing... He, he uh, shared with Eamon Andrews, who became quite famous in broadcast terms, the Tonight programme in attempts. So he went down each week from Manchester and shared that programme, and he was fronting the programme. And he, everybody knew him in London. Uh, uh, and the background to that was that he it was supposed to be Queen, not the Queen, but Queen, the pop group, that he was inter going to interview. And Dad liked musicians, and you know. Anyway, that was what they'd set up, and at the last minute, uh, they couldn't make it, and they were hopping around to try and get somebody else. And some bright spark at Thames suggested Sex Pistols, who were just starting out. And Dad absolutely despised bands like that because he didn't even think they were very good musicians, and they weren't. But they had a very wise manager, I think Malcolm McLaren, I think, was the manager. Anyway, it ended up at very short notice, they turned up at Thames. Dad didn't really know who they were, but just thought they were a set of urchins, you know. And um, so when it came to the interview, they were obviously briefed by their manager, you know, say something shocking, we'll make national press and so on. Uh, and so they, they had a go at Dad on air, um, call him a dirty old man or whatever, you know, just childish, stupid stuff. And Dad said to them, oh, say something else shocking, which they then swore. Uh, and um, these days, of course, nobody would take a blind bit of notice. But it was, in fairness, half past six at night. Uh, uh, and so they did. And he goaded he goaded them. You know, and I'll tell you a, a, a secret, says, says him doing a podcast. Uh, I'll tell you a secret that Dad never used to drink before broadcasting. And that was one of his golden rules. By then, he was very, very good at what he did. And very often with people that take a drink, and, and in fairness, that's what killed him, you know, as an alcoholic in the end. Uh, you think you can get away with it. George Best used to drink champagne before he played football, and he was brilliant, but he got away with it. And you think you can just get away with it. All of a sudden, these guys became, and he thought he could ride his way through this by goading them a bit and making them look stupid, which they were. But it made international press. And um, I was working at Radio Victory and I didn't even see the programme because we didn't get that down in Portsmouth. Uh, but the, the radio station came to me and they said, Tony, um, is Bill Grundy any relation to you? Uh, again, because I'd never said a word. And I said, well, Yes, he's my dad. Why? And I'd heard from the family, and the family's house was surrounded by press. God knows what it would be like these days. Anyway, um, so I'd heard what had happened, and I thought, how stupid. So I never even had, he never even had seen it live until ages later. Um, and years later, when I played it to my daughters, they said, what's all the fuss about because of course things had changed so much that it didn't mean anything to them but he lost his job he was suspended and then sacked because he allowed it to happen on his watch which is to be honest I said to him 
you're stupid dad you goaded them you were taking risks and you shouldn't have done it and of course they're idiots but you know there's better ways of proving that and so um we didn't have long conversations about it but it was the end of his tv broadcast career which had been fantastic he then ended up writing uh, um the uh TV critic for The Standard in London, because he was very well known in London. He's a very good writer, and he did lots of writing, lots of, wrote loads of books, Grundy's London, and all sorts of things. So he still worked for a while, but the drink got the better of him, to be honest. And he died when he was only 69, he was younger than me now. So, you know, to see the demise of somebody like that is, is very painful. Of course, he's my dad as well. But with his broadcast ability, that's such a shame because, you know, you can be in your 70s and 80s and still be broadcasting and certainly writing. But what he gave me, the other side of that, and gave the family, because my brother Tim was a broadcaster as well, that's something, as I said earlier, you can't put a price on, can't put a value on, but it, it's brilliant experience that most people just wouldn't see. You know, and, and uh, I... I I look back on that very fondly as opposed to just looking at the sadness of what happened ultimately. And, yeah. he, you know, when I did broadcast, which I did uh, at Victory, doing the Portsmouth game, sitting in a press box, learning how to do it by telephone, all the things, the tricks of the trade. And I did a weekly programme and I interviewed people, a bit a kind of desert island dish of sporting personalities, you know, oh, and they chose wow. their... Music. And I really enjoyed that because, again, it was a bit like the sales thing just talking to people and listening to them, but encouraging them to talk about their family background and, yeah. and what have you. And I found that very easy. And, you know, I did, I did one with Pelly, the fantastic international footballer, Laurie McMenemy, all these people. And uh, that added to my experience. And not, I'm not saying they were award-winning programmes, but they were, they were interesting and um, gave me a lot of experience. So eventually at 2-0, when I became managing director, I was sales director for a year. I absolutely knew, and that some people say, oh, he's a big head, he's, he's arrogant. I just knew I could do the job. And I was, I had so many ideas. And, and I, 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 I was going hundred miles an hour from the time the outgoing MD said to me, and he chose me, he recommended me to the board, a guy called Tony Stoller. He went to work for the John Lewis partnership, then to uh, the radio authority. And I, I always said to him, I admired your choice. Thank you very much. But, but he said, no, you, you will do this job and you'll do it well. And it was at a great time, or frightening time, because we had to reapply for our license. At that, well, you still do. You get a license, yeah. license period renewal. And, and uh, he, uh, he was going just at the time we had to start the reapplication process. And the frightening thing about that, there's two things. It's either frightening or exciting. If you don't get it right and other people challenge you, that could have been the beginning and end of my radio career as an MD if we lost the license. So you're either frightened by that, and I'll absolutely tell you again, little secret, I was scared to begin with for about a week. And then I thought, what use am I to these people here if I'm worried about the result? I'm now going to start to tell them we're going to do a wonderful job and I'm actually going to try and deter anybody else applying for this license, not by telling them not to, but by telling them 
they need very deep pockets to do it. And, you know, it's a wonderful broadcast area and, and reminding people of the great job Two and Owen done. So it, and we won it back without any challenges. But there was a risk involved in that. And there was like 35 full-time staff. They would all lost their jobs. So you feel the responsibility personally, but you're no good to them if you're spending time worrying about that. And I just told them what we were going to do, which is an extended broadcast area. We went and got Diddy David from Radio 2. Um, I recently did a podcast about that, and that was a fascinating time because we had an extended area with a brand new transmitter on FM. It would take us virtually to France. It was so powerful at Hannington. And I said to the program controller there, Terry, Terry Mann it was, I said, Terry, I said, here's the thing. This is going to be like a relaunch. And we got a very good breakfast show presenter in Graham Ledger. But I think we should go and get a top name to really put us on the map. And I said, I want you overnight. I said, but tomorrow you come back and tell me. You think which person, which presenter would absolutely fit the mold of what we're trying to do? Tell me who it is. And if I agree with you, we will go and get it. Because sponsorship was just kicking off. And I wow. thought we could probably pay quite a lot of money above maybe even what he's getting at Radio 2. As it turned out, he came back and said, David Hamilton. And I said, right answer. That's exactly who I think as well. <laughs> and he said, well, what are you going to do now? I said, no, no. I said, I'm going to find out the agent's, his agent's name and we're going to meet with him. And this was a big deal then for us and for him because he was a, a nationally known figure who was on TV and everything. But I just sensed the music at Radio 2 was, it was a bit all over the place. And I thought, he loves his music. This will really be brassing him off. And I, again, going back to dad, I knew David because he was up in the Northwest as a broadcaster um, from way back. So I had that little advantage yeah. and he knew me as, as Bill's son. He used to play football with Diddy David. Anyway, um, we got this meeting together. I, I always remember it because I, I, I was so full of what we were going to do. And I said, we're going to have an eye in the sky. We're going to have a helicopter, da, 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 da. And David was getting more and more animated about this. What's your music going to be? I said, tell him, Terry, tell him the music, you know, all of this. I said, you, you'll be in there, you'll be the main man. We're going to have TV broadcasting, going to be posters, there's going to be buses, taxis. And, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't bullshitting. That's what we were going to do. Uh, yeah. And um, I said, and you're absolutely the ideal person. And as I was telling him this, David was getting more and more animation. And I, I saw under the table his agent kick David because he was over-enthusiastic, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> And we negotiated a pay rise for him from Radio 2 and included a sponsored program that we were going to send out to the network. And it was all innovative stuff. And again, stuff that you could wake up screaming in the middle of the night and think, what the hell are you doing? But that really put 2-0 on the map in an extended area. We doubled our revenue. We doubled our audience. And David was fantastic. For a couple of years, he signed a two-year contract. Lovely to work with him, and I've, I've spoken to him since. And again, it, it's like friends in broadcast. 
you're always friends with people like that. He's a top professional, you know, and uh, I really like the guy. And he did a great job. And the great thing for him personally was he then was headhunted by Capital Radio. He went on the gold station. Uh, and so he relaunched his career outside of the BBC by going with, so the risk for him was going to a single station in Reading. But he was brave enough to see it was an opportunity. So, and the BBC were furious. They could not believe what he'd done. And we did it in a very clandestine way. So nobody knew until the final moment. We even had David come down at midnight to the two and our studios and record a promo that was going to go out on the TV commercial. Nobody knew. My secretary knew. Terry knew. Nobody knew. And, uh, How and, and, and then when you told the staff, they said, what? He said, and David will be joining us for day one and he will do the breakfast show from eight to 10 or whatever it was. And it, I, I, I used to go to a health club at the post house at Reading, which sounds a bit off-piste in terms of story, but I, I was just getting changed there. And these two guys came in and you wanted people to react to what had happened. They didn't know me. I was just getting changed. And, uh, and, and they said, this guy, one of them said to the other, he said, have you heard what two and I have done? And I said, and this other guy said, what? And he said, they've got David Hamilton from Radio 2. And this other guy said, that'll really put them on the map. And I thought, I couldn't have written that script better. I didn't say anything. <laughs> you know, but it was one of those moments, you know, seminal moments. And, and, and it was a great reward. And it did a, a, a lot of things. So in, in having had a long career in radio, you also take risks. And the risk for me after ending up running radio stations, merging radio stations and doing all these things, was to come out of it and set my own company up that provided training for radio. Using my teaching experience to train people, both salespeople and managers. And that's actually, of course, brings us full circle to how I, I met you because I was being hired by Newbury Sound to be a consultant, yeah? Yeah, no, but I mean, it, it, it's amazing how you've kind of evolved with it all. You know, yeah. you, you just have, you are Mr. Broadcast in your own right, aren't you? <laughs> well, <laughs> you've evolved I, I, with it all, you know. So. Well, it, you don't often sit down and talk about it in, in these ways, but when you think about it, uh, I think uh, hopefully it makes a good story, but it happens to be all true, you know, uh, and sometimes you make your own luck. There is that saying. You know, the harder I, I think it was Gary Player said, the more I practice, the luckier I get, you know, at golf. And, and the harder I work, the more I get, you know, where I'm, where I'm trying to aim. And so I think there's, there's lots of things that can help you. And one of is that grit and determination stuff, you know. They used to call me at Radio Victory, Gritty Grundy. Because, and that was the northern thing, which is, if somebody asked me a question, I'd give them an honest answer as opposed to say, what's or maybes, I'd tell them yes or no. And they say, oh, you're very direct. And I said, well, you just asked me a question, I've answered it. And that's partially the Northern background. Uh, and that sometimes wins your friends, sometimes loses your friends. But yeah, they called me Chrissy Grundy, which I thought was hilarious. But I think that's part of the, it's your personality to a certain extent, goes right back to the flipping a coin as a captain and the, the desire to win. But equally, there are times within there, you're at low points, rather than saying, oh, isn't that wonderful? There were some really low points in there as well, where you really have to pick yourself up and go again. 
and trust in your judgment. And that's what I think I've been able to do. Very often against the grain, in other words, at a time other people have said, do you really think that's a good idea? And I said, yeah, and I'm going to do it. And the training thing was at a time when nobody with radio experience was in training. There were lots of people in training. And I saw a real niche for somebody who could talk directly to people in the business who have that experience. And as you well know in business, the higher up you go in it, the fewer people you can talk to and share stuff with. And I was saying to the MDs, because I knew their role, you can't keep going to a chairman and saying, I don't know the answer to that. Can you help me with this? They said, well, I might as well get somebody else. Now, and equally to the people that report and work with you, going to them all the time and saying, I really don't know what to do. Uh, so to have somebody independently who you knew had done the kind of job you do, I could see there was a value. And I thought this is going to really fly. And in no time at all, although I'd given up a very good job with what was the emerging well, heart group these days, uh, uh, um, but I, I knew that being number two to somebody else in a big group wasn't what I wanted to do. And I thought, I can see which way radio is going to go. And if you think about it, 90% of radio is controlled by two groups, Global and Bayer. And a lot of the localness that I loved about radio was disappearing. I knew it was going to happen, but I thought, how can I make a career helping people to sell advertising during what will be substantial change and upheaval? And um, 20 odd years of my company Communicate Now took me round, I was going to say round the world, certainly round Europe, but took me into America because they're further ahead and I learned from top trainers there. And, just fantastic experiences on the back of broadcast. So it all kept coming back. And occasionally I dip back into radio, like in Newbury, I did write a license which won the radio license for uh, New, what became Newbury Sound eventually, but at that radio station yeah, there. Yeah, I think it's bad, yeah. 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 and, and I, I, I wrote that license and became a launch director for that, but brought in an MD. And then did the same thing uh, for Reading 107. So I stayed a bit longer there and went back there. So occasionally, and I'd learned by then, by the way, Ali, if you're going to make any money, you need equity in the radio stations that you're helping to build. So twice there, I, I turned equity into, into funds. And, and so, but it was lovely to go back into radio operationally and help stations whilst still training other people. So yeah, by the time, you know, when I was 65, I, I thought I'd been back into 107. Tell you what, this maybe is a good time because all the big groups were controlling everything. There were less opportunities for my consultancy then. And to be honest, you know, do you want to go to somebody who's 65 years old or will you go to somebody who's 35 years old? Just being realistic. I might have a lot of experience, but I think you just got to be realistic about that. And I said, right. Good time to draw a line. I'll do other things. I've got lots of interests. I've got lots of friends. And I still talk to help sometimes when they come to me and say, can you help me with this or can you give me an independent? Well, yeah. You know, I, and, and I'm more than happy to do that. And I, 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 I never have ever said to anybody who I like, uh, yeah, but I cost £500 a day consultancy. I've never, I've never ever wanted to charge anybody anything because 
that's me deciding how I use my experience. You know, to some other people, I might, I might say, no, I don't actually want to help you. I don't want to work with you. Not many people. But the fact is that those close circuit of people with me know I'll always help them. And, you know, whether they ring me at 10 o'clock at night or 7 o'clock in the morning, I'll know it'll be. We know, you're our radio dad. <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 it's probably not a bad place to be after all these years. And, you know, uh, one or two people have said you ought to have written a book. Some of the things, you some of the stories. You must. You've got so but, many. I mean, you know, we're, we're doing an hour's podcast, but I mean, you've got so many stories and there, there's so many more that you, you need to write them down. You do. You well, I'll tell you. Tell you some, some of them might get me in trouble even now with the courts and legal. And, you know, it's some of the stories, they're great stories, I'll tell you. But some of the people, you would not believe some of the situations I got myself into. Uh, I sometimes come home from and tell Sue and I say, you won't believe what's happened today. And she'd say, go on. Because she'd heard it all over the years. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, but, but it, it, it's an industry that has done an awful lot of good. You know, you can argue how it is now is different to how it was. Yeah, it is. But things move on, like the technology, the very thing we're using tonight. The thing, the thing is that if you stamp your feet about things, you could waste an awful lot of time and energy. There's an awful lot of things that are much better technically than they ever were. So it's not all bad, not all good either. Uh, so I don't look at it that way. I just think, well, I think I was very lucky to be part of that at the time I did, when it was absolutely at the beginning, nobody knew, some people were scared absolutely out of their minds, quite rightly, by the, the magnitude of it all. But other people, and I would include myself in that, were totally and utterly besotted and excited by it. And that's, you know, even, I, even as we talk now, you know, that kind of feeling of excitement. I've always, always loved radio massively. Uh, and certainly truly local radio and you know community radio it's one of the few places where you can get real localness these days and and you're in local tv that has its merits because of what it can do in its regions and areas and i just think that's exciting in its own way not necessarily something i want but there are parallels the parallels in what you're doing and the in, input you have and the influence you have and i just think that's exciting again you know so no I, I, lovely to get the opportunity to talk about it thanks for listening oh no thanks for coming on tea time it's been really great fun and as i said you've got so many stories and i really do think before i stop this podcast that you should write a book and you should call it communicate now <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's not a bad, not a bad name, I, I, and and uh, that took me. I because I thought at the time, communicate now, communicate now, radio, communicate now, whatever I wanted it to be if I was going to develop it, uh, communicate now, training, and and um, so it wasn't a bad name. I remember talking to Tim, my brother, about it, and uh, he said, "What are you going to call it?" And I said, "Well, I, I, initially I'd I'd been hired by Beacon Radio to run." communicate and they after six months although I was MD of it and I was on the staff they actually said to me you know what we're we're not sure if this is going to be right for us and I said well I'll tell you something it's right for me and they 
because I was a managing director, we came to a settlement and I used that to fund. And I, I thought, what am I going to call it? And I thought, communicate now. It was. It wasn't communicate as was. It was communicate now. And, and Tim said, that's a good name. I said, I know. That's what I'm going to call it. So uh, I look back on that as a, a launch to a brand new opportunity, but keeping me in contact. And if, if you look at it in detail, it meant that I could know the inside workings of not just the radio station I was working at, but every other one of my clients. Massive detail. And I sometimes was talking to MDs and they were potentially, they, they were talking together for potential mergers or being taken over by GWR or people like that. And I knew both of them were involved in those conversations. And I never, ever shared that between them. And then afterwards they'd say, you must have known. I said, yeah. But that's the confidentiality bit that they trusted totally. And I enjoyed that as well. But I understood the pressures they were under at that time. And I knew that's the way the radio industry was going. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I'd have to consult a solicitor on some of the stories, but maybe it's a good idea to write that book. <laughs> and I, I'd really love to see that book. I really would. You know, I feel like I, I know a good half of it. So um, maybe a little bit more. And, you know, yeah. you know, you know, you lost two family members, possibly because of broadcast, didn't you, really? Yes, and the industry they were part of was a heavy drinking industry. So was newspapers that I was in in the first place, unbelievably so, with the journalists, <laughs> the journalists, heavy drinkers, but particularly newspapers then. And it followed through into radio because lots of people from press went into radio. And, and Tim became part of that culture. He, he saw what happened to Dad, and Tim was a brilliant broadcaster. And again, I don't say that because he was my brother. He was. I actually eventually hired him to become program controller and breakfast show presenter at the launch of Reading 107. I was that coven. He would make such a good job. And he made a massive impact there. Unfortunately, he kind of reverted to type with the drink and wasn't able to sustain that. And, and, uh, not that, and he died at 50, you know, and he's my youngest brother. Uh, and that was a tragedy. Again, he could have gone on broadcasting for years. But it, he's not the first person for that to happen to. It just so happens for me to see that twice in the family. Uh, not surprisingly, Ali, about 10 years ago, uh, well, more now when Tim died, when he was very ill in hospital, as it turned out to be for the final time, I said, although I was never a big drinker, I would never drink alcohol again. And partially that fits with my fitness. I, I before I when I played football I never drank alcohol at all I didn't smoke and so I reverted at 60 years old to um, never drinking again and I haven't done and I might sound a bit peevish but at my daughter's wedding I toasted her with a glass of water she and she wasn't offended by that at all some people said you must drink champagne I said I don't drink there are pressures when you don't drink to drink yeah. Yeah. And I, I just said, no, I, I've made that decision and I won't drink for the rest of my life. And that's my decision. Your decision to order another pint, that's entirely up to you. But, but uh, and again, I, I suppose the strong mindedness thing comes in. But I'll tell you what, when you've seen two people, brilliant people, 
brilliant broadcasters demise because of it it's kind of full focus you know so i'm not trying to say woe is me but that is quite difficult to take particularly your youngest brother so no it, it, it is a sad story but it's equally a great story i don't i'm not saying that about the podcast but i'm it is a great story in terms of what they brought the pigeon above me there on my conservatory uh, um but what they brought to the party for me the experience they gave me and i learned from so yeah. i i value, I value that very it has protected you actually in lots of ways ali it has and and given me because of resilience and resource and uh, and you know yeah all right now from 60 years old i haven't touched a drop of alcohol and i and i won't and even during this lockdown going back to that i set myself to train twice a day every day and i looked in my diary today because i still have those old things called diaries that you write in uh, um and it's 18 weeks since i started that and i have and i've never in my life done it before i've always trained but i've never in my life trained twice a day and in fact before i did this tonight all I'd done a 45 minute spin session this morning. I went for a run in the local fields before, and that, that to me helped me prepare doing this. It just, you know, and, and I've kept that going for 18 weeks. And it that was my way of tackling some of the problems that everybody is facing. Somebody else might say, Oh, you're a crazy man, but it helped me. Yeah, no, absolutely. But you're not a crazy man. I mean, you, you've always been. Um, I, I mean, I've asked you about fitness when I, I ran a... Yeah. Um, I, did, I did a run last year, <laughs> didn't I? Thank it was only yeah. five miles. What's that? Uh, Three, yeah. Oh, 5K. Eight, Three miles. 8K, eight, eight yeah. isn't it? 8K, I think, five miles. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember all the tips that you gave me and it really, really got me through because I'd never run that far before. <laughs> no. But, but you, you, the body, I mean, just going back to what I was saying about twice a day, your body's capable of doing an awful lot more than you give it credit for. Now, of course, you can overdo it. And one of the things I said to you about the running is the first thing is to do walk and then jog a little bit and then jog a little bit more and go on a circular route. I remember the things I said to you, and I would have said that to anybody who was setting out running. Don't overdo it. So I'm not overdoing it, training twice a day. I know what I'm doing. I was a PE teacher a long time ago. Um, but the variety of stuff I'm doing has made me, at, I'm now 71 for goodness sake, uh, um, made me fitter than when I started out. You know, so there's a result from all of this lockdown nonsense. <laughs>